The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day in power and in glory. Until then, how should we wait and live? This sermon is a part of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living at the End of Time. We hope you enjoy today's message. Um, I told you last week that when I, I usually write the study guides that you're working with months, months ahead of the, the sermons. And sometimes when it was in November last year, I was breaking 1 Thessalonians up into its various sections. And I have a sense sometimes that when I get to a specific passage to work on some questions and ideas, I say to myself, some months ahead when I get there, it's not going to be easy. So I think to myself, I'll worry about that later when I get there. Well, this week I'm at one of those points when I looked at the passage back in November, I thought to myself, this won't be easy when I get there. Well, now I'm here. And it's still not an easy passage. Because it brings before us a very unpopular subject about the wrath and the judgment of God. You may have realized that as you read this past week, and perhaps you thought to yourself, I wonder what Tom is going to do with this. Well, to be honest, Tom has been wondering what he would do also. I get several comments, people coming in, they said, boy, we had a really alive discussion in our group this week about this, this, this topic. So we'll see how we do. The way that I work to break books up in the Old Testament, the New Testament, means that you work through books, through gospels, through epistles, whatever it is, section by section. You cannot avoid the tough bits. You just can't say, well, we're just going to skip over that. We'll push that aside. You've got to take it as it comes. And that is the discipline of Scripture. That's everything in the Scripture is a tapestry. Some of it has got some, what I often call some dark threads. But they're there in the tapestry of Scripture. We have to learn to value them. I remember John Stott, the well-known English author and preacher, would say sometimes he would open his Bible on the floor in front of him. And he will kneel down before it and ask the Lord, Dear Lord, what is the truth of this in this passage for us? You are, can I say to you as a congregation, uh, since I've been here last fall, you are good listeners week by week. You really are. And I want to thank you for that and applaud you for that. And this morning I will ask for the, um, really the very best of your listening ears. So I don't get misquoted or misinterpreted or miss something in what we do today. Because it's not easy. So if you have a scripture this morning, a Bible or a cell phone, whatever you use to read. I'm going to read the scripture several times in the flow of our text this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Start at verses 14 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 2. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea. Remember Paul had called him a model church, which is in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same way those churches suffered from the Jews who killed Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know the Romans did it, but the Jews, as it were, were behind that. And the prophets also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, these verses, which are obviously a very strong um, attack from Paul and the Jews, have been described as violent and bitter and harsh. It's been suggested that they were added later by some anti-Jewish scribe, but there's no evidence for that. 
So we will take them as part of the text, which Paul wrote in part of the scripture for us. And you would know today that to make such an anti-Semitic declaration might get you into trouble. No Christian can be aware of the long history of anti-Judaism in the church and in history without, I think, feeling some shame and some regret. So there's a biblical and a historical context that we must keep in mind behind this passage. In contrast to this harsh statement we read from Paul, remember several things. Keep them in focus. First of all, Paul was a patriotic Jew. He glorified in his Jewish ancestry. He tells us Abraham was justified by faith. He longed with anguish for the salvation of his own people. In Romans 9, he declared he was willing to forfeit his own salvation if they as a nation might be saved. He says in Romans 9 too, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So he talked about them being grafted into the olive tree. You have to read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 to understand that metaphor. Also remember, please, that when Paul went to Ephesus, his normal priority for preaching was you started at the synagogue to the Jews first. When he reached Rome, his first act was to bring the leaders of the Jews together to try to convince them about who Jesus was from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were convinced, others attacked the Christians. And we need to add some historical background to this. In 386 AD, one of the, what we call the church fathers called Chrysostom, preached eight violent sermons against the Jews. He likened them to animals and made wild accusations against them. In the Middle Ages, in a church council in 1215 um, AD, it forced Jews to live in ghettos and to wear distinctive clothes. Doesn't that sound familiar? And during the Crusades, the church failed to protect the Jews and their communities were pillaged. Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Reformation, not long before he died and his health was declining, spoke out against them. And he called for their synagogues to be set on fire, their homes destroyed. In modern history, we have the tragedy and the shame of the Holocaust, in which some six million Jews were killed in concentration camps and gas chambers. A couple of weeks ago, Harry and I just watched a PBS program one night about two young men who had escaped from Auschwitz. Very few people really escaped from Auschwitz alive, but they made their way across Europe. They met members of the Jewish underground and were smuggled across the channel into Britain. And so they met with some of the leaders of the British government and they pleaded, catch this, they pleaded with them to come and to bomb Auschwitz. They knew that many people would be killed, but that many, many more following them would be saved. The British bureaucrat who got their report didn't believe what was happening. And so he would not send bombers to destroy the crematorium. I remember when I was in Vancouver, I wanted to buy a gift for a um, family in a church I was serving at as an interim pastor. They usually buy them a book. I thought, oh, I can be more creative than that. Get a new baby. What can I buy them? So I thought to myself, um, I would go and buy them a mezuzah. Now I asked the team as we worked before the service, um, how many of you would know what a mezuzah is? 
I got like almost nobody. I can't see the, I can't see the balcony. You're our other congregation, by the way, and so are the people online. If you don't know what a mezuzah is, so let me take a moment and just um, explain what a mezuzah is. It's a, it's a little thing. It's usually about four or six inches high, maybe about an inch wide. Usually made of wood, but you can some of plastic. You can get them from gold and silver. And the back is hollowed out. I'll explain that in a minute to you. And it comes from a text in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It begins, we call this the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. These commandments I'm giving you today are upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the, way, the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, this is the verse you need to catch. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. A mezuzah was often a wooden, Pluto is almost like a doorbell, but it's not. It has a Hebrew letter called a shin on top, on the front end, the front the face of it. That means Shema, O Israel. The back is hollowed out. And the Jews would buy these and they would write the law of the Lord on them or you could get a scribe to do it. And they would roll it up very tightly and then they would nail it on the doorpost of your house. That's a mezuzah. So every time you would come in and go out, you would usually, you would see a Jewish family touch it. Um, many years ago, we had a mezuzah in our home here in Gordon Head. And I, um, we had a Jewish friend come one night and says, Tom, your mezuzah's up wrong. What do you mean it's wrong? Like there's only upside and downside. And I know Hebrew letters, so it's not wrong. He said, no, no, no. You put it up straight. So I said, yeah, I went and got a level and I made sure that it was straight. He said, you don't put it up straight. You have to turn it either, and I forget this, either to the right or to the left, tilt it one way or the other. And I said, why is that? He said, don't you know? He said, nothing stands straight before a holy God. That was the lesson. Now, that's a mezuzah. So I wanted to buy one in Vancouver. Where would I go? Well, there's a big synagogue on Oak Street. So I thought, I bet they have a gift store. So I went to buy a mezuzah, and there was a very elderly lady there. And I told her I was a Baptist pastor. And she went, hmm, okay. Like, <laughs> what are you doing in here? But I, I said, I'm looking for a gift, and I'm looking for a mezuzah. She said, oh, yeah, we got some. And so she got a little stool and put it down because they were up on the top shelf. And she reached up to them and the sleeves of her blouse came down. And what was on her arms? What was on her arms? Numbers. Numbers tattooed. She saw that and she was instantly embarrassed. Came down off the stool. And she said to me, I'm sorry. I couldn't say anything to her. I just couldn't. That's what we've done in history. Paul is simply stating facts. He's not being vengeful. He's not in a bad mood. Many Jews did oppose, oppose the gospel. They attacked Christians. They hindered Gentiles from being saved. And so he declares that God's wrath would come upon them. All of us need to remember that God's love and grace is for all people. God's desire, it says in the scriptures, that all would be saved. John 3.16, you know the verse, God so loves the world 
We also need to remember that Jesus came as the Messiah from a long line of faith rooted in the Old Testament. And Jesus had the highest regard for the Old Testament scriptures. He probably, like many Jewish men, would know all of the Psalms, 150 of them, off by heart. Finally, the gathering of people in Revelation will bring people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And so all of those truths must be said alongside Paul's strong statements. Remember, please, that just a few yards away from Central Baptist Church, at the next corner, stands the oldest synagogue in Canada. So this is one statement in the section. It is strong. It emotes strong feelings. It confronts us with some hard and unpopular questions. So we must start by asking, what is the wrath of God? Well, I think we realize that the habit of the modern church today has to be to play this subject down. Frankly, it doesn't make for popular preaching. We would say that we've had our fill of hell, fire, and brimstone preachers and sermons. We want to talk about, we want to sing about the love of God, to decree his love and his amazing grace. So sermons on God's wrath have really kind of become taboo in our modern society. And Christians and preachers, by and large, have conditioned themselves not to, not to raise the subject, unless it's the next one coming up in Thessalonians. You see, the Bible doesn't avoid it. We see reminders of the wrath in his word of the prophets. Men like Jeremiah and Amos, Hosea and others. We see reflections of the wrath and the word and actions of Jesus. Turning tables upside down of what the Jews have done to his father's house. It's not human action, human anger. It is the expression of the justice of God in the face of his son. There are times, you know, when Jesus is anything but a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Our struggle is that we do not understand what divine wrath means. We think somehow it's kind of God lost his heavenly temper. He had an outburst of seeing red. He, he just kind of lost control. He's in some divine bad mood and frankly just needs to get over it. But his wrath is his hostility to evil. It is his refusal to condone and to accept evil. So what prompts it? Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness in people who, here's the point, who suppress the truth by their own wickedness. It says what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. But since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that, Paul says, people are without excuse. Here's three ideas of things that prompt God's wrath. What I would call, first of all, an unholy exchange. Some divine gift is exchanged for something that is not holy. For example, he says, when we exchange the worship of the creator for worshiping creation. When we exchange the glory of a mortal God for images to look like mortal man and birds and animals. Paul says the result is that people are left without any excuse. Later in Romans, he says, 
when we exchange the God-given purpose for our sexuality as male and female for what he calls unnatural relationships. The second thing that causes it is the suppression of truth. We take divine truths that he says can be clearly seen and we suppress them. We bury them. We push them down. We deny them. I think today our children and young people are getting very confused in terms of sexuality today. That's a suppression of God's truth for us in terms of our bodies. And thirdly, we, we rationalize our sinfulness. We take that which we know to be wrong. We innately know that some things are wrong. And we call them right. Paul says for that our foolish hearts have become darkened. All of that and more is the wrath of God. So when we ask, well, how does it come upon us? Again, let me give you several major ways in which I believe his wrath expresses itself, works its way out in our society. First of all, through our judicial system, the courts and the legal system we have. We need to grasp that God's wrath is judicial. It expresses itself in our judicial system. It is the sentence of the judge and the court administering justice. Sometimes God's wrath, right and wrong, is being expressed through the administra administration of, of justice. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that the governing authorities have been put by God in our world. He actually calls them servants. You know, he uses a church word for that. He calls them our deacons. The governing authorities are our deacons, diakonos, in our world. Romans 13 says that everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Now, he's not saying that our legal system is perfect, nor are the people who administer it perfect. But it is better than anarchy or chaos. And it is one of the ways in which God is at work in our world, administering his justice. The second way is what I call the reduction and the withdrawal of moral and social conscience. Think this through with me. Might be a little bit hard work, but think it through with me. When a nation and a country such as Canada, when it generally has a strong belief and a historical foundation in God and Christian truth. Get that sentence. When it generally has a strong belief and a historical foundation or basis in Christian truth. That results in the general environment of moral and social conscience, which is felt and enjoyed by everyone through the country. In other words, we all benefit from the general sense of law and order, from the positive values of moral conscience. Society in general, I appreciate society is imperfect, but in general, society benefits from the strength of good over evil, from social order over anarchy. Got that? Now that may continue for some time. We've enjoyed fair, some fair longevity with that. And I will say that it will continue so long as there is commitment to truth and ethical conduct from the majority of the people. But when the majority of people reduce their, faith, their beliefs in faith, reduce their beliefs in truth, and reduce their belief in, in light, the moral and social conscience, which has been a, a benefit from which all of society has benefited, 
That moral conscience slowly, bit by bit by bit, begins to diminish. I think we saw that in the legal struggle over the Freedom Convoy last year in Ottawa. We do not hear it slow down. We usually cannot measure its diminishment, but it happens nonetheless. It begins to appear in growing crime statistics, in the breakdown of marriage and family, in the challenge of law and order to the police on the streets. You see, the glue that has been holding society together begins to dissolve. And it's because social and moral conscience cannot sustain itself without a basis for truth giving it life. When we lose the importance of our own internal moral code and we exchange it for something which is simply legal, so long as it suits us, that will reduce things. We'll deal with the legality next week. Let me give you a couple of very small, very simple examples for this. When I first came to, to Victoria in 1981, pastor church in Gordon Head, I was involved a number of times in opening sessions of Parliament with prayer. I was on some kind of roster, I guess, that now and again I could call on a Wednesday morning or whatever it was. Um, I was invited up to, to lead us in prayer. There was, a, there was even a parking lot, a, a parking stall space up in the legislature buildings which simply said clergy. That practice of opening Parliament with prayer on a daily basis has stopped. Small thing, I'm not sure anybody even noticed it, but it has stopped. Here's another one. When you went to vote in elections and you filled in your ballot card and you laid it across, a, you put it into a ballot box and there's a hole across the top. You know what used to lie across that, that hole? Someone said it. A Bible. Do you see a Bible today across that? I don't think we do. Also, when we came to Victoria 81, Harry and I this week were talking to someone else about this. We did not see many of the social struggles on the streets and police face that we see today. Our children and young people in schools were not facing the issues and the subjects that young people are facing today in schools. So we might ask, why is this? Things are changing. What may be happening? What may be happening is that God slowly removes his presence. He slowly reduces his influence. He quietly lets us, lets us at a personal, a civic, and a national level sow what we reap. We slowly lose God's mercy without understanding that what is mercy? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. By the way, grace is the opposite. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And so when, mer when mercy diminishes, when mercy is diluted, when his mercy is reduced, we start on the streets of our cities to get what we deserve. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. 
He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being, birds and animals and reptiles. And then following that, in verse 24, in verse 26, in verse 28, three times, Paul says, in response to these decisions, three dark drumbeats, it says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. The Roman nation. He's saying that the divine but the invisible glue that has bound us together for so long is slowly being withdrawn. And we wonder why society is coming apart. Everywhere we see a pattern of degeneration, slowly but constantly working its way out. It moves from knowing God, from idolatry to immorality. Each generation brings a new fresh crop of ungodliness and unrighteousness. In this downward spiral, this downward movement, we recognize the, the present action of divine wrath. It is the withdrawal of moral and social restraints that keeps society functioning. So God's justice is at work. Not in the sense that he intervenes in the, in the lives of our world, but precisely that he does not intervene. He simply lets us have our own way. He simply lets us go our own way. He lets us have what we have chosen. So I wonder, I wonder if we are at a time when exactly this is what is happening across our province in government, across Canada, and in many ways, in fact, around our world. Is it the wrath of God quietly working its way out in society? If you need proof of that, just look around us. We sow what we reap. We have only to look around and see what we are coming to. Thirdly, God's wrath is what's called eschatological. I mean, a word you don't know. It simply means the last days. God's wrath is a divine wrath to come in the last days as eschatology. Paul's warning to the Jewish nation, and in fact, to the whole world, was that there would be a coming day in which the wrath of God comes upon the world. It's the unsaved, the unbelievers, who have refused to respond to the love of God who are seen as the objects of his wrath. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God. Before that, it is a state which humanity chooses. And it is chosen on the basis of what we believe about God, his work in the world, and especially his son. Perhaps the best known verse for many of us, raised in church or whatever, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then it goes on. The next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world 
but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It means what it says. People pass judgment upon themselves by rejecting the light and the truth that comes to them in and through Jesus Christ. So in the final analysis, what God does is his justice, both in this life and beyond into eternity, is to lead humanity into the full implications of the choice that it has already made. The basic choice is simple. Either we respond to the invitation, come to me. The invitation to meet and to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, or to turn away from that. Remember the line in John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish. No one stands under the wrath of the judgment of God, save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in his wrath is to give humanity what it has chosen. If life starts in the garden, sin also starts in the garden. That appears in the story of God's first act of wrath towards man in Genesis 3, where we learn that Adam chose to hide from God, to keep clear of his presence before God ever drove him out of the garden. That same principle applies to all of the Bible. But alongside this dark picture, there stands a picture of life and hope. When you read the whole passage in Thessalonians, Paul says, for what is our hope? What is our joy? Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? You are our crown and joy. He's saying that those who will stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus are those who know the hope and the joy and receive the crown of Jesus. If we would know God, and God said he can be known, he's not playing hide and seek with us. We see him in creation. We, we live in one of the loveliest parts of the world. We're here not to worship the creator, but to worship creation. We see him in space. We see him in the face of a new baby born. It is vital that we face the truth concerning his wrath, how unpopular that may be. Because without knowing that, we will not fully understand the depth of the gospel of our salvation. Nor will we understand the redeeming love of God. Nor shall we understand the hand of God in history. Nor will we make heads or tails of the book of Revelation. So he's saying there's only one way that we can move from this divine wrath to a divine welcome, changing from idolatry to worship, changing where we will spend eternity. Last week, I, was, I just loved the theme that the director of the summer camp at Kiwanis gave for us at the camp this summer. To say to these children and young people coming up for a week of fun and laughter and excitement and all that they did, this is not all there is. Did you catch that? This is not all there is. There is more to come. And we choose today how we will spend eternity. Jesus plainly talks about those who will go to eternal punishment 
of the righteous move to eternal life. Because between us who are alive today and the thunder clouds of divine wrath, between us stands the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we belong to the Christ through faith, if we're justified by his cross, the wrath of God will never touch us, neither here or in the hereafter. I invite you to stand, please, this morning. The worship teams when to come back. So I say to you this morning very simply, our hope stands in only one thing, actually in a person. Our hope stands in Christ alone. So as we affirm this truth this morning, may I quietly, but deeply and sincerely ask each one of you, can you affirm that truth in your own life, that you have placed your faith and your hope for here and for eternity in Christ alone? that you will know with certainty that one day you will stand before God, as we were singing this morning earlier, with sins forgiven and redeemed, and our life cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, to be welcomed home one day by the word of the Father into the Father's house. That applies also to all of you watching online. Can you affirm this truth today? And so in a moment, as usual, we sing a closing hymn, But can I say to you this morning, this is not our closing song. It is so much more. It is a sure and certain declaration about whose we are. I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning a couple of nights ago. I do some of my best thinking then. And I thought, imagine if we could pass around a clipboard with the words of this song on it. And underneath, I'm saying to you, have you written your name? Have you written your name? If you can say yes this morning, God bless you. And if you can't, would you write your name to this this morning? Sign it a sheet of paper and ask yourself, today I sign and I add my name to God's list. Here this morning at Central Baptist, perhaps for the first time, today you can choose eternity. Today you can choose hope. Today you can choose life and all that comes to us in Christ alone. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.